Now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Let me ask you, if you had to keep the same car your entire life, then how well would you look after it? You would do, right? Well, our brains work the same way, and how we treat them and our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to spend that time and care looking after them and keeping them as healthy brains. Now there are loads of ways you can do this. It may range from throwing yourself into learning a new language to even taking regular power naps when they're needed. But there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Whenever I've needed to in the past, I've personally found that talking to a professional has helped me figure out exactly what it was that was causing me stress and was beneficial in making it better. So should you feel this may help, then perhaps BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp offers customised online therapy in the form of phone, video or even live chat sessions with your therapist. So if you don't want to see anyone on camera, then you don't have to. You can be matched with a therapist best suited for your needs in under 48 hours and is much more affordable than any in-person therapy. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R. H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Your regular deep dive from North Wales into tales of the macabre, the seemingly unreal, and often unfamiliar stories of true crime that I scour the UK and Ireland to bring to you. Doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the Mog That Sleeps Like a Log, Pixie, is here with me as always. And we're completed by you, the integral part of the true crime triangle, the wonderful listeners that make the show worthwhile. It's as fabulous as always having you join us today, and I do hope that as the episode finds you, then it finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So a big hello and thanks going out to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time around going out to new friends, Karen Eckert, Brian Hearn, Sam Wilkinson, Katie Petit, Marie O'Connor, Claire Keane, Susan Papp, Bridget, Dee Dee Carter, Sam, Kieran Pike, Brett, Terry Fremantle, Stephanie Pritchard and Julie Raby, plus Leslie Slaney, Sarah Hall, Kelly Bodler, Linda Altman Harmons, Mark Galvin, and Preeti, who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there as well. Thank you so much, all. It's so very kind of you to support like that. It really does mean the world. I say it all the time, and I mean it all the time as well. It really does. You are all fabulous. Best fans ever. Now, you as well can be like this kind lot and support the enthusiasts there yourselves. Perhaps you might want a bit of show stuff, or perhaps you're content with just the full series plus of unreleased bonus tales that being a supporter gets you. I'm talking the crazy tales behind episodes such as Lucifer's Outlaws, or The Cannibal and the Cowboy, to the horror of Disfigured and an offering to the angels, even to the strangeness behind Strange Tales from the South, or the latest tale that's out, bring out the gimps. It costs the best part of bugger all to do so as well, less than the price of a pint in most places, and you can become a supporter quick as a flash and easier than a Love Islander. Yes, just because it's finished, the flack on them does not ease up for a second. Waste to skin. 
So you just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, always with that podcast suffix, or you can just use the link that's omnipresent in the episode show notes. So, we're surely to begin the series arc, but throughout the past week, what with live shows, London, you are fabulous by the way, and bring on Manchester in October, plus the usual chaos that July and August always brings with my pension plan role, and it also having been so hot everywhere that even bloody Prince Andrew was sweated, and it saps you doesn't it that, so I've decided that I'm putting it off for another short week, I just haven't had the chance to research the first part of it as much as I'd like to yet, and I'm not doing any part of it half assed whatsoever, that's not my bag. Yet I have still had a bit of a break, but in which time I've put out the latest Patreon offering, And so, wanting to get back on the air, I've decided on a different episode, call it a bit of me tying together a few loose odds and ends that I've had here in my research for a long time, that haven't yet made onto the show. Well, actually, truth be told, that I'd never even considered for it until a couple of days ago. I'll bring you two accounts throughout this episode, both spanning the early to mid-1980s, and which some of you with long memories may think, I'm sure I've heard these tales before somewhere, and which indeed you may have, though I haven't plagiarised anything or ripped anyone off, these are both my written and researched tales that I wrote several years ago for another show. But I haven't yet told them myself in my own style, and it's been years between them airing, so here you are. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for an episode that I've entitled The Gas Man and the Madman. For our opening tale, we're off somewhere we've visited before several times on The Enthusiast, the UK city of Bristol, this time to the city's south district of Bedminster. Points of note concerning the area are that it was one of the most heavily bombed in the Second World War, and notable residents associated with there a 14-year-old schoolchild, Alfred Dancy, who in 1850 was convicted of murder and deported to Australia after he shot two classmates with a pistol that he'd brought into school. Nice kid or what? And Mary Baker, who in the 19th century was an English impostor who posed for some time as a fictional princess named Caribou who claimed to come from a far-off island kingdom, and who was a cause celebre that fooled many. Now that tale, I only briefly looked into it, but it is crying out as a tale to be told by my friends Bob and Ali from the Twisted Britain podcast. If you listen to those guys as well, I'm sure that you'll agree with me there. Number 156, in the corner of Bedminster's Almora Road, where it meets the B1322 St. John's Lane, was once a local corner shop. It's a house today, but back in 1975, it was a thriving shop and had been taken over that year by Bristol couple Roy and Joan Page. The tobacconist and sweet shop, complete with its swing doors cutting across the corner and the proprietor's name in lettering across the shop window, was the type of place that, although once commonplace, is seen less and less today due to the inability of them to compete with larger businesses. Roy and Joan had built up the business from taking it over and worked hard at it, becoming well-liked and well-known in the area as a result. 
and though sadly Joan had passed away in 1982, Roy had continued to run the business, living alone at the back of the shop. By 1985, when he was 61 years old, it's fair to say that his life had pretty much centred around the place, though by that time it was somewhat dilapidated. The lettering was peeling away, and well-needed, well-overdue liquor paint and general TLC to the outside that Roy never quite seemed to get around to doing. Nonetheless, he opened at 7.30 each morning, staying open more often than not until at least 8.30 every evening, and having a steady stream of customers. Running a local shop tends to make you well-known and a constant in the area, and Roy was no exception. He was popular and well-liked by his customers, who knew him as a friendly and devoted family man who always had time for a chat with whoever dropped in for cigarettes or groceries. Alongside his many friends, Roy had the full support of his family also. Ever since the loss of his wife of many years, they'd worried about him and had all rallied round to care for him somewhat more. His sons and daughter looked in on him often, his then elderly mother would cook meals for him each day, and his sister Shirley would run errands for him and do his housework. The warm day of Thursday, July the 18th, 1985, was no different to this. Shirley had been around to clean up for Roy, and noticed that he'd left the shop's safe door open, with a substantial amount of money left lying around. Now this was something Shirley had told Roy about many times before, as he was known to be quite careless with money. He often left the shop till drawer open, and instead of using the safe exclusively, had a tendency to put amounts of cash in ice cream tubs or envelopes that he would then leave lying around his house. So, closing the safe, Shirley reminded him once again to be more careful, then left at about 4.15 that afternoon. About 90 minutes later, a friend and neighbour of Roy's, Tom Coles, called around to the shop to buy cigarettes and to have a chat with Roy but found the door to the shop locked. Looking through the shop window, Tom could see that the light was on at the back of the shop, and so thinking Roy had just locked the door while he'd gone to use the toilet, Tom waited. But when ten minutes had passed and there was still no sign of Roy, Tom began to worry, for he knew that Roy was diabetic, and was concerned that he may have perhaps fallen ill. With this worry steadily increasing, Tom returned home and tried to telephone Roy, but got no answer. By now thoroughly alarmed, Tom then returned to Roy's shop with another neighbour, only to now find several children and quite a crowd of worried people outside the shop also, several hammering on the door and shouting through the letterbox for Roy. But there was no response. By 7.30pm, Roy's son Brian and his friend Stephen had arrived, and Stephen climbed over the rear wall of the premises to see if he could get in through the back door. He was back a couple of minutes later to report that he couldn't, for the back door was locked, all of the windows were closed, and the curtains downstairs were all drawn. Knowing that his father never drew the curtains, Brian now knew that there was something seriously wrong, and seeing a police patrol car passing, he flagged it down. Together with the police officer who had stopped, PC David McQuitty, he, Brian and Stephen, now managed to force open the doors to the shop, only to be immediately met with the overpowering smell of gas. Making their way through the shop and into the house at the back, in the hallway, 
they were met with the sight of Roy Page slumped half in and half out of the understairs cupboard, clearly and sadly beyond any help. But this was no collapse due to him being overpowered by a gas leak. Roy had been brutally beaten to death, left with severe head injuries. As if his killer wanted to ensure that he left his victim dead, a gag had also been brutally forced down Roy's throat, suffocating him. After making a shocked and distraught Brian and Stephen leave the house, both for their safety and to preserve the scene, one of the police officers who went to turn off the gas found that every gas appliance in the house had been turned on full, turning each of them off. Miraculously, the pilot light on the gas cooker had gone out, so if it hadn't, there would have been a tremendous explosion. And gas explosions, you don't just blow them out, we're talking proper devastation here, and on a street of terraced housing such as this, absolutely unthinkable. Now making his way out, the police officer requested both police and fire service assistance to the scene. Within minutes, a full-scale murder investigation was underway. An incident room run from Broadbury Road Police Station was opened, and command of the investigation was given to Detective Superintendent Lou Clark and his deputy, Detective Inspector Brian Saunders of Avon and Somerset Police. After the property had been declared safe to enter by fire crews, a police surgeon had certified death and an ambulance had taken Roy's body away. Squads of police officers began to undertake house-to-house -house inquiries in the area, theorising that on a sunny afternoon in such a busy and close-knit residential area, someone must have seen the opportunistic and brutal killer. Alongside scene of crime officers who'd moved into the shop to begin documenting and examining the scene. It was very soon established that robbery had been the motive for Roy's brutal murder, as more than a thousand pounds was found to have been taken from the premises, the safe and till being left wide open, and every ice cream tub that had contained cash emptied. Also, strangely, a hairbrush had been taken away from the upstairs, though the accompanying mirror to it had been left there. But as careless as Roy had been with money, Roy's killer had been careless too, and when senior crime officers and forensic experts had finished at the scene, it was found that the killer had left behind two vital clues at the crime scene. The first of these was a grey earpiece from a set of headphones that were used in 1985 to listen to a Walkman or a radio. There was none of your earbuds back then or anything. But the second clue was much more damning. There were some fingerprints found on an empty chemist's bag lying on the kitchen floor that had contained a prescription for Roy that couldn't be identified and were not found to be held on file. And following the pharmacist who had handled the bag being eliminated from the inquiry, it was thought possible these were Roy's killer's prints, perhaps left by the killer touching the bag when picking up the cloth that had then been forced down Roy's throat. Very, very important to have a what, eh? Further evidence came to light as the investigation progressed and as the house-to-house -house inquiries expanded from Bedminster to other areas of the city. Several witnesses who were spoken to gave accounts of seeing a man that day the police soon became convinced was Roy's killer. He'd been far from inconspicuous in the city on the day of the murder and indeed had seen and spoken to several people throughout that day. 
The description that was to emerge when this information was pooled was of a tall, dark-haired and heavily built man, some describing him as 15 stone plus, 25 to 35 years of age, dressed in dark blue overalls, wearing headphones and carrying a Walkman or what was possibly a calculator. Some witnesses simply described the object in his hands as being a black box. Some other witnesses could add other bits of colour to this and described the man as wearing spectacles which were attached to his head with elastic bands, while others mentioned him wearing a brown woolen hat. But the two details that were unanimous amongst all who had spoken to this man were that he claimed to be an official from the gas board who was in the area looking for gas leaks and that he had a very rich, very strong Welsh accent. Now it also became apparent that the man had seemed to focus his attention upon tobacconists and sweet shops throughout the city. He'd been seen in at least three of these on the morning of the murder in the Horfield area in the north of Bristol, but seemed to have shifted his attention south by the early afternoon, and had moved down to the Bedminster area. Here, he was seen loitering in at least one sweet shop there early that afternoon, where he eventually left after buying a cold drink, but in the next couple of hours, the man was seen and spoken to by many people, where he repeated this story of him being a gas board official out looking for gas leaks, which when checked with the gas board was found to be false, because of course they don't just tend to send people out patrolling in case they come across a random gas leak, they're not that shit hot or anything. Two witnesses who had seen and spoken to this man were sisters Maureen and Elizabeth Gerrish, who lived in Bedminster's Hill Avenue, and who at about 4pm that afternoon had answered the ring of their doorbell to be confronted by the bogus gasman, who asked them if they'd noticed any gas leaks in their house, which of course they hadn't. As they stood talking on the doorstep, Elizabeth noticed that the man's overalls had come undone, and that she could see he was wearing white underpants with thin blue piping along the waistband. Now that might sound a strange thing for me to add in, you may think, but all will become clear somewhat later. Elizabeth and Maureen had had no problems whatsoever with their gas supply, as I've just said, but coincidentally, they knew that a friend of theirs, Mrs Perkins, had, and so they directed the man down to her home, which is only a few doors away from them, down towards the junction of Hill Avenue and Almora Road. Mrs Perkins had indeed been concerned that she had a possible gas leak in her kitchen, and so when the man arrived at random, she at once invited him inside to investigate. He did actually find a leak, but this seemed to cause him problems because he had no repair equipment with him. All of a sudden, and this was to become quite crucial later on in the investigation, the man began to sweat profusely and struggle for breath, leaning on the kitchen sink as though he was going to pass out and needed to support himself, and gasping, asked Mrs Perkins for a glass of water. Concerned, she got one for him, and even tried to persuade him to sit down and stay for a cup of tea to compose himself. But the man made excuses, gulped down his water, and left the house in an agitated hurry. Now, Roy Page's shop was on the corner of Almora Road and St John's Lane, and so, if this was his killer, then he must have gone straight there after this. Sometime before 5pm, two passing paperboys were convinced that the man was talking, or perhaps arguing with Roy outside the building, 
and shortly after 5pm, a woman walking opposite the shop, Jeanette Hemmons, saw an overalled man following Roy inside. A woman who knew Roy, Martina Allen, made the last confirmed sighting of Roy alive at 5.20pm when she came into the shop for sweets for her daughter. Then, a man walking home from work past the shop, Brian Davidson, saw someone coming out of the side door, a man whose description tallied with all of the others, heavily built, dark hair, wearing glasses, but this time who was without overalls and who was carrying a jacket or clothing under his arm. It was thought to be blood-stained overalls. Now, although police had over time collated all of these sightings and had a fantastic description of Roy's likely killer and his movements, they couldn't find him and the investigation was going nowhere, so they decided on a gamble. Can you hazard a guess what they turned to? Crime Watch UK, of course. Now was the time for a Crime Watch reconstruction. Boom. Now I haven't had much chance to slate the BBC for cancelling Crime Watch this series, but believe me, I'll make up for it here. Though Crime Watch was ultimately one of the most successful television programmes to have ever been broadcast on UK television, and through its long run was responsible for the successful detection of hundreds of crimes, including some of the most serious and high profile in British criminal history. For example, the arrest of Michael Sams for the 1992 murder of Julie Dart and the kidnapping of estate agent Stephanie Slater, a tale I've covered on The Enthusiast some years ago in the One-Legged Train Spotter trilogy, and the notorious and horrific murder of Liverpool toddler James Bulger in 1993, to name just a couple. So even though it was responsible for detection of crimes such as these, the BBC first decided to piss about with its very simple and successful format, and then decided after 33 years to cancel it, all to make way for some of the shite that it airs today, like Bridge of Lies, Mrs Brown's Boys, or anything, anything, with that chinless wonder Michael McIntyre in. Well done, BBC, you absolute twats. So, back in June 1984, Crime Watch had begun with the most famous and best-known combination of its many presenters, Nick Ross and Sue Cook, hosting, a combination that who both hosted from inception for over 10 years. And although as time went on and its success showed it could pretty much pick and choose the crimes it covered, with police forces nationwide jumping at the chance to have their most frustrating cases appealed to a nationwide audience. Back in 1985, it wasn't yet recognised as the valuable tool it would become. Because it was brand new and it was unknown just what kind of a difference it could make, in its early years, Crime Watch often had to make its own appeals and sell itself, offering its help directly to detectives investigating crimes. This was the case with the Roy Page investigation. A researcher for Crime Watch had seen an appeal about Roy's murder mentioned in a local newspaper, and a film director for the programme subsequently contacted the murder incident room offering Crime Watch's assistance. Police, whose appeal, as I said, was going nowhere, jumped at the chance, and so, a few days later, after permission had been gleaned from Roy's family, Filming on a full-scale televised reconstruction began. Some of those involved in the case opted to play themselves in the reconstruction, including Roy's sister Shirley, 
and his neighbour, Tom Coles, as well as witnesses such as the Gerrish sisters and Mrs Perkins. An actor was found to play Roy Page, and an actor was found through a trawl of casting agency books that bore a close resemblance to the bogus gasman, who, as an added bonus, could even portray a splendid mock Welsh accent. As I've described to this point, the known events of the day that Roy was murdered were then reconstructed and filmed, and on August the 29th, 1985, just six weeks after Roy's murder, some 12 million people the length and breadth of the UK watched the reconstruction on that month's edition of Crime Watch, and heard Detective Superintendent Lou Clark appeal for information leading to the arrest of Roy's killer, which Roy's two sons and daughter had reportedly pooled their life savings together to offer a £5,000 reward for. The edition is thankfully one of those vintage Crime Watch UK episodes that are available on YouTube, and a link to the relevant edition, if you want to watch it for yourself, can be found in the episode show notes. However, Detective Superintendent Clark and his team were left feeling disappointed. By the end of the evening, long after the phone lines to the studio had closed, there'd been surprisingly few calls received, and only one of these had any really significant information to offer. The caller was a woman who lived in the Bedminster area, and who had been away on holiday at the time that the case had been publicised, but who had now called to say that about 5.40pm on the day of the murder, she'd gone to Roy's shop to buy sweets for her daughter. She found the shop closed, and peering through the glass doors of the shop, she suddenly saw a man appear near the counter, whose description matched that of the bogus gasman. Seeing the woman at the door, the man had placed his hands against his cheek and mouthed the words, he's asleep, as though referring to Roy, so the woman had then left. Now, although this was important fresh evidence, because the woman had seen the killer at the scene of the crime, it brought the investigating team no nearer to catching Roy's killer. It looked indeed as though Crime Watch was going to be as much use as an ashtray on a motorbike, and the investigating team would be faced with the only line of inquiry left to them a painstaking recheck of fingerprints that may have taken months and months. Remember, back in 1985, computer databases were in their infancy, and records such as these were kept on the old index card system. However, just a week after the Crime Watch programme had been broadcast, on Friday, September the 6th, there was suddenly a new turn of events, for the bogus gasman reappeared this time on the south coast of England, in the city of Portsmouth. Seemingly unaware that millions of people had seen him portrayed in a TV reconstruction just one week before, that afternoon the man began to behave in very much the same way as he had in Bedminster on the day of Roy Page's murder. He was dressed the same as he had that day, and repeated the pattern he'd displayed of visiting small shops, this time in the Fratton district of the city. Here, his behaviour disturbed one woman serving in the local spa supermarket on the junction of Chichester and Bewley Road so much that she was later to claim she thought he'd escaped from the local mental hospital. He wandered around the shop for a fair few minutes, eventually buying a frozen steak meal, but instead of leaving, he instead lingered about by the door, acting strangely. However, 
the man eventually left when some other customers come into the shop. Then, just half an hour after this, the bogus gas man was seen at the bottom end of Chichester Road, loitering outside a small newsagent's there. The witness who'd seen him, Stephen Harfield, had seen the crime watch reconstruction and had been so struck by the figure's resemblance to the bogus gas man depicted in it that he'd stopped his car in order to watch the man's behaviour in the car wing mirror. The man was drawing attention to himself, acting strangely by loitering outside the shop as though he was debating whether or not to go in, and after watching this behaviour for a few minutes, Stephen decided to act upon his suspicions and went to call police from a nearby public telephone box. Now, he was to be the first of six people to ring police and report the bogus gas man acting suspiciously in Portsmouth that afternoon. But by the time the police followed up most of these calls, the man had disappeared. The sixth witness to call up, Colin Weaver, had also seen the crime watch reconstruction. Colin had been looking after his two nieces on the night that the programme had aired, and the children had been playing with the TV remote, changing the channels over whilst it had been airing. Although he'd consequently seen very little of the reconstruction, just portions of it, something had triggered Colin's memory when, as he was driving down Clark's Road, he spotted the man about 45 minutes after Stephen's sighting, strolling into Kingston Park. Following his instincts, he stopped his car and followed the man into the park, where, trailing him from a distance, Colin watched the bogus gas man wander over to a mound at the side of a children's playground sit down and lay back to bask in the sun of that warm September afternoon. Thinking that the man looked as though he was in no hurry to move and was going to stay there for a while, Colin rushed to the nearest telephone box and called police. Police constable Peter Green had already that afternoon received several reports about this man, but every time he'd responded to the calls, the man had disappeared. PC Green had not seen the Crime Watch broadcast, and so he wasn't entirely sure what he was looking for. But after an afternoon of fruitless searching, he was determined that the suspect would not get away this time, and headed to Kingston Park with added impetus. When he arrived, the man was indeed still there, reclining on the grass verge with his shoes beside him, like he didn't have a care in the world, and didn't seem at all phased being approached by PC Green. When questioned as to his identity and business, the man identified himself, in a very strong Welsh accent, as Clive Richards, before adding that he was a professor. Firstly he was from London, and then he said Reading in the next breath. He claimed that he was a professor of nonatology and totatology, and was employed at the time by the Department of Environment doing a top-secret study for them concerning conservation. Richards claimed that he'd also been in London conducting surveys concerning the homeless and had gone down to Portsmouth that day to continue his studies, this being, he claimed, the reason he was dressed like he was, to blend in amongst that community. The man's story, given in a somewhat rambling and confusing manner and sounding as bollocks as I've just described it, didn't seem to sit quite right with the officer and coupled with the fact that this man strongly matched the description that PC Green had to go on of the bogus gas man, even down to the strong Welsh accent, he then asked Richards to accompany him back to the police station to answer further questions. Richards was more than willing to accompany the officer here, 
His only concern being that he was back in time to catch his train home that evening, and after being assured that he would be delivered to the platform personally, the two then set off for Portsmouth's Kingston Crescent police station. Upon arrival there, PC Green decided to search Richards' bag and removed several items from it that inflamed his suspicions about the man further. In his bag, Richards had several bottles of pop, a pair of rubber gloves, a Walkman and a pair of white underpants with blue piping around the waistband. There was also a heavy iron bar and a sheath knife. Richards was unabashed when he was asked why he was carrying such weapons, claiming that these were for his own protection whilst he was carrying out his surveys amongst the homeless community, but acquiesced that this was enough to keep him at the station for a while longer. Referring then to a telex that had been circulated by Crime Watch UK following the reconstruction that had a full description of the bogus gas man, PC Green was by this time convinced that they had the fella sat right in front of them, and so he rang the Bristol Incident Room to inform them of developments. The murder investigating team receiving the call there were euphoric and told PC Green to at all costs keep the man there with detectives immediately dispatched on their way down to Portsmouth. The Deputy Senior Investigating Officer of the investigating team, Detective Inspector Brian Saunders, was one of the team who journeyed down on the three-hour drive from Bristol to Portsmouth, all the while thinking, is this too good to be true? This man matches the descriptions we already have from witnesses perfectly. Upon their arrival, he was at first struck by the array of items removed from the bag that Richards had been carrying, especially the underpants that matched perfectly the description of those worn by the gas man that had been given by the Gerrish sisters. When Detective Inspector Saunders went into the interview room, he was even more bowled over, instantly struck by how perfect a match physically that Richards was to the description of the bogus gas man given by witnesses right down to his strong Welsh accent. But for Brian Saunders, the moment he became convinced that he had his killer in front of him was when he identified himself and his colleagues to Richards as detectives from Avon and Somerset Constabulary and told Richards that they were arresting him on suspicion of the murder of Roy Page. Detective Inspector Saunders recalled later, I introduced myself and said I was from Bristol and arrested him for the murder of Roy Page. And, I'll never forget this either, he started to sweat profusely and asked for a drink of water. This is the man, I thought, this must be the man, because I remembered Mrs Perkins had described the fellow doing the same and asking for a drink of water. It all slotted in so neatly, it was almost too good to be true. Richards kept gulping from a bottle of water all the way back to Bristol denying that he'd killed Roy Page and maintaining that he hadn't even been in Bristol on July the 18th, the day Roy had been murdered. The following morning, after Richards had spent the night in a cell at Broadbury Road Police Station, his fingerprints were taken, and lo and behold, they were found to match perfectly the fingerprints that had been taken from the paper chemist's bag that had been found in Roy Page's shop. Richards was also placed on identity parades at a separate police station, where 8 out of 10 witnesses who had seen the bogus gas man on the day of Roy's murder picked him out of these unhesitatingly 
as being the man they'd seen and spoken to. As he was taken back to Broadbury Road Police Station, Detective Inspector Saunders deliberately drove back past Roy Page's shop to see how Richards would react. When asked if he'd ever been there, Richards replied that he never had. Upon their return to Broadbury Road, Richards was subsequently charged with the murder of Roy Page and following appearing in front of magistrates on Monday the 9th of September was remanded in custody awaiting trial. Whilst Richards was on remand awaiting trial, Avon and Somerset detectives worked through the evidence they'd obtained and came to know a vast amount about his life. He seemed to be an extraordinary man, one who lived in a world that was largely make-believe. Indeed, it was difficult to work out to what extent Richards himself believed in the fabricated stories that he came out with. He'd been born in Port Talbot in Wales in 1950, and although he had an extremely high IQ, he'd left school without any qualifications. Remaining at home with his parents, his brother and sister, he had driven the mobile shop that was the major part of his family's ice cream and confectionery business. Encouraged by his parents to branch out the business, he expanded the range of stock in the shop and bought a fleet of six more vehicles. But in doing so, however, the business was left badly in debt, eventually owing more than £10,000. This was a considerable sum of money at the time, so Richards had been left in desperate need of capital. And it was here that his Walter Mitty type character kicked in, with him inventing a whole host of friends, acquaintances, colleagues, business contacts and job offers, all in an effort to convince his father that he was successful enough and able to repay back the money. In reality, he was sinking ever deeper and deeper into debt, and was hiding from bailiffs and repossession companies. So the option he chose was to retreat further into this fantasy world. Richards told his family the tall tale that he was a professor working for a secret society in the field of nanetics, and it may even be the case that Richards himself came to truly believe that he was, and was indeed a professor studying nonatology and totatology. But of course, there were no such subjects as any of these. They were a complete figment of Richards' imagination. Clive Richards entered a plea of not guilty when he came to trial for the murder of Roy Page at Bristol Crown Court on 28th of April 1986 and listened attentively to the numerous witnesses that were called throughout the eight-day trial. Various witnesses who had seen him in Bristol that day and subsequently identified Richards from identity parades were called and gave evidence for the prosecution as to what they'd seen. The investigating officers gave evidence as to the circumstances of Richards' arrest and the physical evidence placing him at the scene of the crime was outlined. Scribbling furiously on a notebook he had by his side, Richards would at times shake his head in denial or disbelief whilst witnesses were giving evidence. Even when a psychiatrist from Broadmoor Secure Hospital gave evidence that Richards' fantasies for working in the field of nonetics were the results of a mental illness. Dr Harvey Gordon, who'd examined Richards during his time on remand awaiting trial, said, On balance, I think he's suffering from severe mental illness, normally known as chronic schizophrenia. However, Richards had not pleaded insanity, 
and nor was one entered on his behalf, he was found totally fit to plead. But evidence of his flair for a fantasy life came when he took the stand in his own defence. For over five hours whilst in the witness box, Richard spoke articulately and claimed he was not guilty throughout. But each time he was presented with evidence that contradicted his claim, he launched into stories that were so complex and bizarre that they became incredulous to believe and impossible to follow. At points throughout the proceedings, it sometimes became difficult to envisage that the man in the dock was nothing more than a fantasist and was incapable of being a brutal killer. But ultimately, the jury saw through the fantasy and found the wealth of evidence proving Richards' culpability overwhelming. On the 7th of May 1986, Clive Richards was found guilty of the murder of Roy Page unanimously by the jury. The presiding judge, Mr Justice Rose, passed the sentence of life imprisonment upon him and pronounced this considered view of Richards's crime. You are a clever, arrogant and dangerous man. Had it not been for the observation and prompt action of a number of inhabitants of Portsmouth, I fear you would have committed other very grave offences which you had already planned. He was then taken down to start his life sentence. Detective Superintendent Lou Clark, the officer who led the hunt for Roy's killer, was in agreement with Mr Justice Rose, saying after Richards' sentencing, I quite agree with the judge's remarks there. Think of the way he was armed when he was arrested. He had a heavy iron bar and a sheath knife in his bag. Why did he have that lot? I haven't any doubt myself that he was out to commit robbery at least that day, and if opposed, he would have used as much violence as necessary to achieve his ends. That's my opinion. That will always be my opinion. Due to the passage of time since his conviction, there is the very real possibility that Clive Richards is today a free man. It's impossible to pinpoint why he went to Bristol that day in July 1985 and why he targeted Roy Page's shop. Why he chose to make himself so conspicuous whilst in the area and why a strong man of 35 years of age felt the need to use such violence against an elderly man also remains a mystery known only to Richards himself. He never admitted why, instead constantly denied his guilt despite the overwhelming evidence. For our second and final account of the episode, we head back even further now, back to the summer of 1980, to July and to Brentwood in Essex a town that spawned such notable people as author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Douglas Adams, actors Griff Rhys-Jones, Stephen Moyer and Ross Kemp, and sporting legends Frank Lampard, Frank Bruno and Fatima Whitbread. As Fatima was no doubt ruined failing to qualify for the women's javelin throw event at the 1980 Moscow Summer Olympics, on its opening day of the 19th of July, a Saturday, the neighbours of a young married couple, Stephen and Hilary Burroughs, back in Brentwood's Milton Road, had become worried about their absence, the young couple not having been seen by any of their neighbours for a number of days. They knew that the couple were excited about an upcoming holiday to Spain, but that wasn't for a couple of weeks yet, and so they wondered aloud why they hadn't been seen. That July of 1980 was a warm and dry one, yet the milk deliveries from the previous day and from that Saturday, 
remained on the doorstep. Neighbours had also noticed that lights had been left continuously on in the house since the Thursday evening, the 17th of July, and that the bedroom and lounge curtains had also stayed shut throughout the Friday and the Saturday. Stephen Burrows was 26 and was working as a relief manager in the catering trade and his wife Hilary was a year younger than him. They were a typical young happily married couple who'd been married for just approaching three years and who had moved into the corner property of Milton Road, number 41, two years before in the summer of 1978. Milton Road was back then classed as being in the older part of Brentwood though the Burroughs house had at the time been one of those modernised. The ground floor of the property was near open plan, with a kitchen leading off to a separate dining room and lounge. Stairs then led from the dining room to a bathroom and two bedrooms upstairs, while the outside consisted of a small front patch of grass and a considerably larger back garden, with the side of the house being bordered by a thick unruly hedge that offered privacy for the couple. Two years earlier, the couple had enjoyed a brush with fame when they were featured as part of a documentary television series focusing upon weddings that was made by London Weekend Television. For people in the UK of a certain age, I'm sure you can remember the iconic opening sequence that used to be featured before television programmes that were made by the company. There was that and the Thames Television logo as well. Both of them are iconic, as I said, if you're of a certain age. In 1977, London Weekend Television had commissioned a series focusing upon weddings and worldwide marriage traditions, unsurprisingly called The Wedding, and Stephen and Hilary had been chosen to be the British couple who would be the main feature of the show. Camera crews had shadowed the couple constantly during their preparations leading up to their wedding on the 14th of September 1977, from them choosing the venue and the stag and hen-do arrangements right through to their personal feelings and any nerves that each had about their upcoming nuptials. And as well as the ceremony at St Martin's Church in Shenfield, the programme had filmed the reception and had even filmed the couple as they left for their honeymoon. The early fly-on-the-wall warts and all documentary series was shown twice on British television in 1978 and each time it was, it was a massive hit, pulling in some 11 million viewers. But this brush with fame had not gone to the couple's heads, though they proudly told everyone that they'd been on it, and one of their proudest possessions was a presentation edition of the programme. They'd otherwise remained a down-to-earth, cheery couple who would always stop and speak, and who would wave and greet neighbours whenever they saw them. So, when they hadn't been seen, the neighbours, although privately quite concerned, were somewhat loath to appear as being nosy by knocking on the door. But finally, the concern was enough that they felt the need to contact police and voice this, who responded by dispatching a patrol car to the house that arrived late in the evening of Saturday 19th of July 1980, just before midnight. The police who arrived on the scene noticed the build-up of milk on the doorstep of number 41 and tried knocking loudly, but got no reply. So whilst one of the officers remained at the front of the house, the other went around to the rear of the property to investigate further. The house was in darkness from the rear, but then the officer noticed that a louvered window at the rear of the house was about a foot wide open, with a small oval-shaped hole clearly visible by the side of its catch. 
Suspecting that a crime had been committed here, the officers radioed their findings into the station and after being granted permission from a senior officer, forced entry into the house. What the officers were to find upon entry was to stay with each of them for the rest of their careers. Each officer remained in agreement that it was the worst, most disturbing crime scene that, that each had ever attended and it was only when investigating and scenes of crime officers arrived at the house, after being summoned by the shaken police officers who had taken one look and then retreated to preserve the scene, could the full horror of what had happened in number 41 Milton Road be appreciated. Moving into the dining room stroke living room area, the naked bodies of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs were found lying on the carpet. Each were covered in blood, and each had been tied at the wrist, Hilary with a pair of her own nylon stockings, Stephen with a blue necktie, another pair of Hilary's nylon stockings, and a pillowcase. He also had a dressing gown belt and further nylon stockings tied tightly around his neck. Both had been stabbed repeatedly, and Stephen had also been battered viciously around the head with a heavy object. Blood was everywhere. It was all over the living room, all up the stairs, and all over the downstairs furniture. In fact, the scene was described as looking like an abattoir. Following the large quantities of blood that were leading a trail up the stairs, investigators found yet much more extensive blood staining in the couple's bedroom, leading investigators to believe that at least one of the burrows had been attacked in here before being forced downstairs. The house had then been ransacked thoroughly from top to bottom. Stuff of nightmares indeed, that, eh? Pathology reports following the autopsies of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs chilled investigators further. Stephen had been killed by three vicious stab wounds that had penetrated his chest, wounds that had been inflicted with a seven-inch bladed knife and that had been delivered with such force that the full length of the blade had penetrated his flesh. Hillary had been restrained in a similar way, but had been even more brutally slaughtered. She'd been stabbed at least 15 times in the chest and stomach, wounds that the killer had used two knives to inflict. One was the same as the knife that had been used to kill Stephen, but several of the wounds on Hillary showed that a knife with a different shaped blade had also been used. Both knives were later discovered to have been taken from a set of French chef knives in the kitchen that the Burroughs had been given as a wedding present. There was no evidence that Hilary had been raped or sexually assaulted at all, but, in the opinion of the examining pathologist, the couple had been subjected to some degree of torture, a theory backed up by findings in the house. The mattress on the couple's bed was pockmarked with several deep, clean stab wounds, seemingly pointing to the killer, or killers, building up to the horrific slaughter that was to come, by waking the couple, and then putting fear into them first, by demonstrating what was going to happen to them. That doesn't even bear thinking about, does it? It seemed likely that Stephen had put up a fierce struggle to defend his wife, had been overpowered either by being battered about the head or stabbed first, and then Hillary had been killed. It was also noted at the autopsy that both Stephen and Hillary appeared to have consumed brandy before they died. There was an empty brandy bottle at the scene, 
and alcohol had been splashed over the corpses of both Stephen and Hillary. Stephen even had traces of it in his mouth. Had the killer made some sort of macabre toast to his victims, or even forced them to drink it? Sadly, Hillary was also found at post-mortem to have been three months pregnant at the time with their first child. The couple were in the process of decorating the spare room as a nursery when they died. Utterly tragic that, isn't it? Attempting to piece together what exactly had happened, detectives believed that the murders had most likely happened up to two nights previously, on the Thursday night, which would tally with the neighbours' reports of the left-on lights, the still-drawn curtains, and the two days' worth of milk delivery that had been neglected on the doorstep. Hillary had that Thursday evening attended a jewellery party at a friend's house, while Stephen had been out for a drink with his friends, and it would appear that late that evening, the couple had been in bed when the killer, or killers, had broken into their home through the back window and attacked them in their bedroom, possibly whilst the couple was still asleep. It soon became clear that the original motive had been one of robbery. The house had been thoroughly ransacked and several items of value were missing, including a wallet containing cash, Hillary's diamond engagement ring, and several other items of jewellery that had been taken from her dressing table. This gave police one possible theory as to why the couple had been targeted. Perhaps someone knew that Hillary was going to a jewellery party that evening and had followed her home, perhaps mistakenly thinking that she had expensive jewellery in the house. Or had someone, knowing the couple from their appearance on the wedding series, deliberately targeted the house, thinking that the couple were very comfortably off, having been paid handsomely for their appearance. But then either way, why go on to commit such a brutal act of slaughter? Forensic examination of the scene led, led police to believe that the killer had spent a number of hours at the house following the murder, and the forensic search yielded a number of fingerprints, and bizarrely, the clear imprint of a pair of lips on the couple's bedroom door, as though the killer had pressed his face against it, listening to see if they were asleep. It seemed that the killer had shown no forensic awareness whatsoever, and detectives were convinced this was someone who had offended before, an experienced burglar who had now gravitated to murder. They also concluded from the level of violence that had been used that the killer was a deeply disturbed, possibly drunken maniac, and one who could strike again if he wasn't caught sooner rather than later. Aside from the detailed forensic search of the Burroughs house, Intensive house-to-house -house inquiries were carried out, as well as fingertip searches of the surrounding local area undertaken to determine whether the killer had discarded anything as he fled. But these inquiries yielded nothing. No blood-stained clothing, discarded property or murder weapons were found, and nobody spoken to in the Milton Road area reported hearing any screams or shouts at all that Thursday evening, or any sounds of a struggle. However, as the couple had the corner house in the street, and next door to them was empty, this didn't overly surprise investigators, but it did bitterly disappoint them. They had a brutal maniac to catch, and by narrowing down an exact time that the murders had occurred, they could begin to work out just how much of a head start that the killer had from them. Deciding to play on the borough's status as Brentwood's TV wedding couple, 
in order to get people to come forward and volunteer information. On the Monday following the murders, Detective Superintendent Peter Blythe, the officer leading the 50 detectives hunting for the brutal killer, held a press conference in which he stressed the importance of catching him before he struck again. Using a photograph of the couple taken on their wedding day, and one that had been used in the TV programme to bring home to people just how shocking a crime this was, Detective Superintendent Blythe told reporters, The bodies were found in the lounge. They were naked, but there was every indication they'd retire to bed in a normal way. It is possible that the break-in disturbed Mr Burroughs and he went down to see what was happening. This was a particularly horrendous and very tragic crime which went horribly wrong. This man could strike again at any moment, and believe me, having seen the ghastly circumstances that he left that house in, he needs to be caught now. Detective Superintendent Blythe also stressed the devastation that had been left for Stephen and Hillary's families. Hillary's mother and father, Frederick and Charmaine Cox, had both needed sedation since the discovery, unable to even comment about it, while Stephen's mum and dad, Alan and June Burroughs, though devastated, had praised their quiet, mature and unflappable son, with Alan agreeing with Detective Superintendent Blythe, saying, I think if he heard an intruder in the house, he would have gone down to investigate. He had a young wife to protect, and he would do that. Now, it is of course crucial to mass appeal for information, especially in the direct geographical area that any crime has been committed in. But because Brentwood is so geographically close to London, the Essex detectives looking for the Burroughs killer knew there was a distinct possibility that the man they were hunting could live not just in the local area of Brentwood, but in one of the many districts of East or North London, or perhaps even further out. This would mean that they had a massive pool of suspects to examine, all the while with the horrific possibility that the longer this maniac was at large, the more risk there was of him striking again at any moment. The murder detectives worked diligently with this at the forefront of their minds, and as a result of their intensive local inquiries, news soon reached them of a person of extreme interest that they needed to eliminate from the murder inquiry. Reports had filtered through of a man who had drawn attention to himself through his aggressive behaviour and his excessive drinking in several pubs in the Brentwood area on the evening that the Burroughs were murdered. The man was described as being in his late 20s to mid 30s with laser-like staring blue eyes, having unkempt and straggly hair, who was shabbily dressed and with a severe reddening of the skin on one side of his face as though he had some sort of medical condition such as rosacea causing it. Throughout the Thursday evening, the man had been seen by numerous people when he'd visited several pubs in near proximity to the Burroughs' home and had been noted to drink a mix of pints of lager in tandem with several short measures of spirits. He had had angry words with a customer in one of these pubs over some spilled alcohol and was remembered because the situation had nearly disrupted into a brawl. Close to closing time anyway, the man was asked to leave the pub as a result of this altercation and he went, though loudly protesting and being abusive as he did so. The detailed description of this man was issued on bulletins to detectives across the county and to the Metropolitan Police 
and one sharp-eyed CID officer in London recognised the description of the man to be a possible match for a well-known burglar and violent offender, 34-year-old Russell John Hart. Hart was a habitual criminal, a loner who was known to be a heavy drinker, and who had a long and extensive record for offences of violence, having been in trouble with police on many occasions, and as a result had served prison sentences for several assaults and other violent crimes, racking up 11 of these. Long estranged from his family, Hart was known to have connections in the areas of East London, Romford, Harold Hill, Collier Row, Chelmsford, Southend and Brentwood, and was nomadic, travelling between these and only ever working sporadically by drifting between casual labouring jobs. During the frequent periods of unemployment between these jobs, Hart supported himself through burglary, theft and cheque fraud. As on paper then, he seemed a prime suspect in the borough's murder, and in order to eliminate him from the inquiry, copies of the many fingerprints that had been removed from the borough's home were rushed to Scotland Yard, and were compared to the fingerprints that police had on file for Hart for the purposes of elimination. Hart's fingerprints were found to be a perfect match for the many samples that had been taken from the scene of the borough's murder. Thus, eight days after the Burroughs had been so horribly murdered, on Friday the 25th of July, the police mugshot of Russell John Hart was released to the press and was shown on television, with Essex police stating that they wished to speak to him urgently in connection with the murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs, and that he was to be considered as extremely dangerous and not to be approached. The full description of him was given, right down to detailed distinguishing features, such as the fact that Hart suffered from rosacea, as well as a description of the tattoo Hart had on his right arm, a depiction of a rising sun underneath the words, John loves Sue. The response was electric. It led police to believe that Hart was having to sleep rough because he was so shunned by his friends. At least two of his acquaintances, horrified by the brutal crime, had come forward to police following this. One of them supplied police with a much more recent photograph of Hart, taken while he was working on a building site only two weeks before, but who was so fearful of Hart's response that he'd requested a police guard whilst he was at large, and another who had tipped off police when he saw Hart knock at his door, but deliberately didn't answer, police missing him that time by minutes. Following another tip from an ex-girlfriend of Hart's, on Sunday the 27th of July, police were also led to a locker at Southend Left Luggage Office, where a bunch of dishevelled, heavily bloodstained clothing was found. The blood group from the staining was found to be a match for that of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs. Now, with his friends and acquaintances shunning him, this was an occasion where an appeal worked very swiftly, or perhaps a conscience got the better of someone, for the very next day after his clothing was found, the 28th of July 1980, at 7.30pm, Russell John Hart walked into Chelmsford Police Station and gave himself up. Hart was to make a full confession to the murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs, but insisted that he remembered very little of the actual killing, except for seeing blood all over the blade of one of the knives he'd used. 
He also claimed that after the killings, he'd gone back upstairs and actually settled down to have a sleep on the burrow's bed. The rest of the events were hazy, he claimed. Hart then told detectives that he'd not known Hillary Burroughs had been pregnant until he'd read about the crimes in the newspapers. He told them, This means that I've really killed three people then, haven't I? It's terrible. I deserve to go away forever for this. Following his confession, on Wednesday the 30th of July, Russell John Hart appeared at Brentwood Magistrates Court, charged with the murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs, where he said nothing as he was remanded in custody to await trial. Almost six months later, Russell John Hart appeared in the dock at Chelmsford Crown Court on Monday the 26th of January 1981 and entered a plea of not guilty to murder but instead guilty to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, a plea that was accepted by the Crown. Why he'd exactly committed the horrific crime and the exact sequence of events that had occurred in the Burroughs' house that evening were left unclear. Raymond Sears QC, prosecuting, told the court, The full horror of what went on in that house for an unknown period of time and to that quiet and loving couple will probably never be known. It died with them that evening and is locked in the defendant's mind. What we do know is that this couple was savagely butchered and most probably tortured by this man. How long they suffered is not known, nor is the motive for the horrific attack. The court heard that Hart had been known and feared as a dangerous violent loner even in his early years and had developed an uncontrollable craving for alcohol from a very early age. This was a craving that deemed to set him on the road to his life of crime, as he would regularly steal money to pay for alcohol to satisfy his cravings. It was habitual for him to drink heavily daily, indeed, by age just 16, it was not uncommon for Hart to drink up to 10 pints of beer a day. It was also whilst drinking that Hart became most violent and surly, and was known and feared throughout the local community when he was in this state. He was eventually caught stealing money and was sent to Borstal, where, denied alcohol, he was forced to satisfy his cravings by downing quantities of shaving lotion or distilling a combination of metal and shoe polish to drink. Upon his release from Borstal, Hart immediately fell back into his old ways, though he met a girl and married in the late 1960s. However, the marriage was not a happy one from the off, as Hart's violent ways soon resurfaced, and he was often a violent wife-beater. A cycle of imprisonment, release, and offending again continued, until after one violent encounter too many, Hart was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital in the early 1970s. Hart ultimately served four years in Broadmoor, but it didn't serve as a cure for his disturbed mind whatsoever and upon release, he went immediately back to his destructive cycle. Not long after being released, Hart stabbed and almost killed his wife while in a drunken frenzy, but due to a combination of his medical problems and his alcohol dependency, plus an unbelievably lenient judge, however, he was given just a paltry 12 months suspended prison sentence for this. Isn't that unreal, eh? His long-suffering wife fled from their house in fear for her life following this verdict, never to return to him, and soon afterwards divorced him. 
I should bloody well think so too, shouldn't you? Only a year later, Hart was again in trouble with police and was jailed for three and a half years after admitting scores of offences of burglary and dishonesty involving fraudulent checks. While serving his sentence for this in Her Majesty's Prison Lewes in East Sussex, Hart was involved in an argument with another inmate whilst both were in the prison gym. As a result, Hart stabbed the man in the chest with a homemade knife, puncturing one of his lungs, an incident that was to earn him a surplus four years added to his original sentence. However, he'd been released from this sentence early in February 1980, just five months before the evening that he went drinking around Brentwood, and when the pubs had all shut, it seemed that a drunken heart had roamed the area looking for a suitable house to burgle, and had just purely at random chosen number 41 Milton Road, where he then committed the horrific murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs. Horror beyond belief. A psychiatrist who had examined Hart whilst he was on remand awaiting trial, Dr. Henry Rollin, yes, that's his real name, testified to Hart's history of disturbed behaviour and psychological problems, and that his diagnosis was that he suffered from a gross personality disorder, including having paranoia of being followed and hearing voices of a hallucinatory nature. The Crown was in total agreement, and on Monday, the 26th of January 1981, Russell John Hart was ordered to be detained indefinitely and was sent to Rampton Maximum Security Hospital with a presiding judge, Mr Justice Chapman, telling Hart This was a case of quite awful animal ferocity of a type that could only be perpetrated by someone who was totally unbalanced mentally. The public must be protected from people like you. Hart was then taken away to begin his sentence. Now in his 70s, he's believed to remain incarcerated to this day. The investigation had also produced a piece of evidence that had it been produced before the court, should Hart have pleaded not guilty, would have been unprecedented in a British court of law. Remember when I said that forensic officers examining the crime scene had bizarrely discovered the imprint of a pair of lips on the borough's bedroom door? Detectives had managed to remove a very clear imprint of these, allowing them to establish that the killer had stood listening at the bedroom door with his mouth pressed directly against it to see if the couple were awake. When Hart was arrested, police took an imprint of his lips and they were found to be a perfect match with the imprint lifted from the bedroom door. A dentist had produced a mould of the print taken from the door and a photograph was taken and blown up to be used as evidence in court should it be required. Although it was not as unique as a fingerprint, police felt confident that they could show that the lips on the bedroom door were of the same thickness as Hart's, and that therefore it was highly likely that the print belonged to him. It was a technique that had been used before in legal proceedings in Japan and Mexico, but had never been used before in the United Kingdom. It was, however, not used as Hart pleaded guilty to manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility, which was accepted by the court. So two terribly sad and senseless crimes there then, and two savage killers that deserve to spend the end of their days behind bars for such terrible actions, 
each of them, I think, as well, having an aspect of mental illness to them. Looking first at Richards, we've heard how he lived in a somewhat world of make-believe, inventing subjects that he claimed to be a professor of. Yet strangely, he never used this as a defence, instead showing the arrogance that he believed he could talk his way out of a murder charge, despite the overwhelming evidence against him. He'd even been suggested as being schizophrenic whilst on remand, yet was found bad, but not mad, at his trial. Whether or not Clive Richards' mental state deteriorated after his conviction is undocumented, but I would suggest that it possibly did. If someone lives in a world largely of make-believe, and the alternative is prison life, loss of liberty and imposed restriction, then wouldn't you retreat into that world as a happier alternative? I think it very likely he did, and perhaps remains there to this day. It's something that's difficult to ascertain really, well, it's almost impossible in some cases. And in no way are we talking about a master criminal here. A Welsh-accented, bogus and far from inconspicuous gas man tends to stand out in a closely knit Bristol suburb after all. Yet this didn't occur to Richards, plus he showed no forensic awareness whatsoever ultimately leaving his prints at the scene. Yet, he looked as if he was to repeat his horrific actions that September day in Portsmouth. But what's to say that he hadn't already before then, before killing Roy Page even? A troll of unsolved cases across the country involving similar victimology, and I can think of a couple off the top of my head, may be worth considering Richards as a possibility for. Thankfully though, he was stopped when he was, for he would certainly have done this again. Russell John Hart, meanwhile, what do you say about him? An absolutely shocking crime, a chilling one that Hart has never explained the reasoning behind. He's never explained exactly what drove him to such bloodlust, particularly against Hillary. He's either unwilling to, or is truly unable to explain his actions on the evening of the 17th of July 1980 perhaps due to the psychosis that he suffers from. The murders of Stephen and Hilary Burroughs were terrible indeed, and it's one that would be sad enough in the best of circumstances, but one that's made even more tragic by the fact that not only it just happened to be that house at random that Hart selected to burgle that evening, but that Hilary was pregnant at the time of her death with the couple's first child. He really did take three lives there not to. I don't believe it beyond the realms of possibility that Hart may have killed others too. He's certainly capable of doing so, and again, a look at unsolved cases within the areas he was known to frequent against the times he was at large may be worth seriously looking at, with him in mind as a suspect. Now, with his appalling record of violence, and this is someone who almost killed two people we know of, before he became a family annihilator, remember, and his disturbing alcohol addiction, which has got to be pretty severe if you'll drink bloody shaving foam and boot polish, as well as his inability to keep from reoffending, combined with the horrific murders he committed, I ask you, is there ever a time that the madman Russell John Hart could ostensibly be safely released from custody? I would think not and I would certainly hope not either. What do you think? 
I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the accounts I've brought you in The Gas Man and The Madman, which you can do so in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. Wherever you want, folks, it's always great to hear from you wherever. Take from the episode, predominantly though, not thoughts of this too, but of the shopkeeper who always had time for everyone whilst earning his meagre living, and a young couple just beginning their married life together, excited for the birth of their first child. Roy Page and Stephen and Hilary Burroughs. Those are the important ones to think about here. With that, I shall wrap up here then, back to the research, and I shall catch you back here very soon for the start of the series arc. I thank you all so very much for joining me in the MOG today, and for your continued support. It means the bloody world, it really does. And all that's left for me to say then is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.